This week's episode of Certified comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ace the exam. ACE the OCS is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas. The author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order your copy today. Again, the name of the book is Ace the OCS, and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. So today we're going to start talking about the carpal tunnel CPG. Uh, This is actually going to be part one of two episodes where we go over the CPG. Um, If you've already read it, it is quite a long CPG. So we wanted to split this up. Um, Like we've mentioned before, we're trying to keep these episodes a little easier to digest. um, And so we thought that splitting the CPG up made sense. Um, So this is a really recent CPG compared to some of these, the others. It was released in 2019 based on literature prior to November, 2018. So even though we realize this is new, the evidence that's presented in the CPG is important, not only for you to know for the OCS, but also for clinical practice. Um, Like I said, this is a very dense and detailed CPG. I'm going to do my best to, um, make it a little easier to digest in this episode. Um, But that being said, please remember, we do not ever intend uh, to encourage you to listen to these episodes rather than read the CPG, but instead listen to the episodes as a summary of the CPG to enhance your studying. So please still read the CPGs, um, listen to this before, listen to it after, uh, whatever works best for you and your studying style. Um, But it is very important to read the CPGs and not just listen to us talk about them. Okay, so what I want to start with is discussing prevalence and incidence of carpal tunnel syndrome. So overall lifetime prevalence of self-reported and physician-diagnosed carpal tunnel syndrome, regardless of work status, is 8%. Prevalence in the U.S. working population, when confirmed by both electrodiagnostic testing and clinical examination, is 7.8%. The prevalence in women is nearly twice that for men. It's 10% compared to 5.8%. And there is a marked increase in prevalence with increasing age. So the prevalence is 3.7% in individuals younger than 30 years old um, and up to 11.9% in those over 50. Incidence data has shown that there are more cases in the U.S. compared to France. That's just something they noted in the CPG. I'm not sure if that's due to lifestyle, cultural things, um, but it is more prevalent in the U.S. Data compared from 1981 to 1985 to data from 2001 to 2005 shows an increase in carpal tunnel syndrome from 2.58 per 1,000 persons a year to 4.24 per 1,000 persons a year. The data also shows an increase in occupational-related carpal tunnel syndrome from 2007 to 2011, which the authors hypothesize could be due to greater awareness and more patients presenting for care. So I know personally I've had a lot of people who, if they have any sort of hand 
discomfort or numbness and tingling, they sort of self-diagnose that carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, so that's kind of what they're referring to here. I mean, I don't know if you've had a clinical or similar clinical experience. I have, yeah. Patients come in and they'll tell me like, oh, my hands are always numb. It's it's carpal tunnel. And mm-hmm. really, a lot of times it's not, but... Yeah, yeah. So that's where they're thinking maybe there's um, some of that increased prevalence maybe just due to greater awareness around the diagnosis. Um, also, not surprisingly, the incidence rates of carpal tunnel syndrome in the working population is higher than in the general population. The authors do note that when the diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome is confirmed using symptoms alone, the incidence is much higher than when using electrodiagnostic tests alone. So this finding supports the need for a better gold standard to confirm the carpal tunnel syndrome diagnosis. The next thing we're going to talk about are anatomical and pathoanatomical features. The authors of the CPG do a really nice job summarizing the anatomy of the carpal tunnel, but for the sake of the ep- this episode, I want to skim this section a little bit. I would highly recommend reading pages eight and nine of the CPG and closely reviewing this in more detail. It's going to help you understand uh, the CPG as you're reading through it a little bit more. So the carpal tunnel is formed by the carpal bones and the transverse carpal ligament. Nine flexor tendons pass through the carpal tunnel and the carpal tunnel contains two bursa. The median nerve is vulnerable to compression from external and internal forces as it is the most superficial structure in the carpal tunnel lying between the transverse carpal ligament and the ulnar bursa. Sensory and motor innervation of the median nerve in the hand includes the sensory branch of the thumb, index, middle, and radial half of the ring fingers, while the motor branches innervate the first and second lumbrical muscles, opponent's pollicis, abductor pollicis brevis, and the superficial portion of the flexor pollicis brevis muscles. The sensation to the skin directly over the carpal tunnel and the thenar eminence is typically not affected because these areas are supplied by the palmar cutaneous branch, which branches off the median nerve approximately 5 centimeters proximal to the wrist crease. The area over the scaphoid tubercle is also spared in carpal tunnel syndrome because its innervation comes from the lower antibrachial cutaneous nerve. Classic carpal tunnel syndrome symptoms include numbness and tingling in the median nerve distribution of the hand, and in more severe cases, loss of strength of muscles innervated distally by the median nerve. Median nerve pathology impacts all nerve functions distal to the site of the lesion, with some possible pain being felt proximally up to the shoulder. Even though the definition seems straightforward, there is controversy regarding an etiology of carpal tunnel syndrome. A variety of pathoanatomical factors have been implicated in the development of carpal tunnel syndrome, including elevated carpal tunnel pressure, ischemic changes within the nerve, and compression of adjacent structures. The CPG goes into details on evidence regarding each of these possible pathoanatomical factors on pages 9 through 10. Amanda, is there anything you want to add on anatomical and pathoanatomical features? No, I don't think so. Okay. The next thing we're going to touch on is clinical course. So the likelihood of patients having a successful response to non-surgical management is unknown. There is evidence that some patients are very successful with non-surgical management. However, the percentage of individuals who progress to surgery after failed non-surgical management ranges from 23% to 84% after three months and 57% to 58% at six months and one year, respectively. There need to be larger studies to validate factors that predict progression to surgery, and more research is needed to identify the characteristics of patients who benefit from non-surgical management versus those who can achieve positive outcomes only through surgical management. 
The factors that may influence results with non-surgical management include symptom duration, severity of nighttime symptoms, presence of a positive Phelan test, presence of thenar eminence muscle wasting, and prior non-surgical intervention with carpal tunnel syndrome. But again, these all need to be researched further. Clinically, we need to carefully monitor the progress of these patients and refer for surgical consultation if they're not improving with non-surgical management. So just like anyone else, um, you know, we want to keep an eye and make sure we're reassessing these patients, making sure they're making progress, um, but particularly with carpal tunnel syndrome because we, there isn't a clear, um, you know, patient who benefits from non-surgical versus surgical management. We want to make sure they're making progress and we're referring them when necessary. The next thing we're going to talk about is classification. Um, so this is looking at these acute versus chronic patients. So acute patients are relatively rare, um, and these have various causes, such as spontaneous bleeding, thrombosis, dislocation of a metacarpal base, infection, pregnancy, and fractures, with distal radius fractures being the leading cause. Chronic is more likely what you're going to see in the clinic, so these patients have a gradual onset, sometimes presenting in an individual finger and later spreading to the remaining median nerve distribution. The initial onset of symptoms is usually at night, but as symptoms worsen, individuals may complain of symptoms throughout the day, along with clumsiness and difficulty with grip and pinch. Carpal tunnel syndrome is most commonly classified by severity rather than being acute versus chronic. Um, and so it's classified by mild, moderate, severe, or extreme. Classification systems reported in the literature are largely based on data from electrophysiological studies. There is a lack of consensus on clinical classification of carpal tunnel syndrome, especially in the absence of electrodiagnostic studies. According to the evidence presented, the frequency of symptoms seem to be a factor in determining mild from moderate carpal tunnel syndrome, with mild demonstrating intermittent symptoms and moderate demonstrating more constant symptoms. And thenar muscle atrophy being the clinical sign that distinguishes patients with severe carpal tunnel syndrome from those with mild or moderate symptoms. The next thing we're going to talk about is risk factors. These are all discussed in detail in the CPG, um, but I'm going to provide a general overview here. So the risk factors that they discuss in a little bit more detail are obesity, age and female sex, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, cardiovascular risk factors, including hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, and high triglycerides, osteoarthritis and previous musculoskeletal injuries to the wrist and hand, hypothyroidism, genetic predisposition, and then they talk about wrist and hand anthropometrics. So it's been proposed that individuals with a square-shaped wrist and those with shorter fingers may be at increased risk for carpal tunnel syndrome because of a greater need for flexion and extension range of motion, and therefore more force required to perform tasks. Over time, this may increase carpal tunnel pressure. Alcohol use has also been associated with carpal tunnel syndrome, um, but they actually say that light to moderate drinking fewer than three drinks per day either did not increase the risk or decrease the risk of carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, with smoking, there's conflicting results from studies assessing whether smoking is associated with increased risk for carpal tunnel syndrome. So um, that is still unclear whether there's a um, link there. Uh, physical activity level decreases the risk for carpal tunnel syndrome. The next is oral contraceptive and estrogen use. So current studies present conflicting results on oral contraceptives. 
Studies that evaluated estrogen replacement therapy alone demonstrated that women who underwent therapy were twice as likely to require a carpal tunnel release surgery than controls. Um, Women's health factors, so they talk about hysterectomies, menopause, ophorectomies, and parity. They say that hormonal imbalance has been hypothesized as a reason for increased risk for carpal tunnel syndrome, but there are some conflicting results in studies looking at these factors. So on page 16 in the CPG, they have a summary of the risk factors. Um, So I'm just going to kind of read you a a quick summary here because those were a lot of different things that I mentioned. So the strongest link to carpal tunnel syndrome are obesity, age, and female sex. The risk increases linearly with BMI and age. The risk doubles in individuals with a BMI greater than 30 kilograms per meter squared and those over the age of 50. Female sex increases the risk by one and a half to four times. Intrinsic risk factors linked to carpal tunnel syndrome, but to a lesser extent, include diabetes, osteoarthritis, previous musculoskeletal disorders, estrogen replacement therapy, cardiovascular risk factors, hypothyroidism, family history of carpal tunnel syndrome, lack of physical activity, risk ratio greater than 0.70, risk palm ratio greater than 0.39, a short, wide hand, and short stature. No conclusion can be made on RA, smoking, alcohol abuse, oral contraceptive use, menopause, parity, hysterectomy, or ophorectomy due to conflicting evidence. So I know that's a lot of different things that they talk about. Like I said, um, page 16 has that summary of the risk factors, so I would definitely review those. Occupational risk factors uh, is another topic that they discuss. So forceful exertions, repetitive use, vibration exposure, and wrist position are all associated with carpal tunnel syndrome. The risk factor of forceful hand exertions has the greatest association with risk of carpal tunnel syndrome. High psychological demand at work when paired with low decision authority increases risk for carpal tunnel syndrome. When it comes to computer use, Um, The authors note that it does not increase the risk of carpal tunnel syndrome when compared to the general population or industrial workers. However, when comparing office workers with short versus longer duration of computer use, the odds of carpal tunnel syndrome are slightly increased. So the next section is differential diagnosis. Um, And this is going to be really important when it comes to these patients with carpal tunnel syndrome. Like we mentioned, a lot of patients will feel like that's maybe what they have. Um, So it's important to do a really good differential diagnosis on these patients. Common differential diagnoses include cervical radiculopathy, thoracic outlet syndrome, diabetic or polyneuropathy, or other median nerve neuropathies, such as pronator teres syndrome and ulnar and radial tunnel syndrome as well. Serious conditions such as ALS and multiple sclerosis can begin with distal symptoms that mimic carpal tunnel syndrome. Patient history, presence of risk factors, location and characteristics of symptoms, upper quarter screening, and a clearing exam of the cervical spine are all important to differentiate carpal tunnel syndrome from other conditions. Advanced imaging and electrodiagnostic studies have also been used in the differential diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome. However, according to the CPG published in 2016 by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, there is limited evidence for the use of handheld NCS device in the diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome, and moderate evidence to support the use of electrodiagnostic studies. In the guidelines, they discourage the routine use of diagnostic ultrasound and MRI in carpal tunnel syndrome. So 
not necessarily things that you're going to be doing, but it is important just to understand what the evidence says about that. So Amanda, anything you want to add on differential diagnosis? No, I don't think so. I think just to reiterate what you just said, um, just making sure you're doing really good screenings in these folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would also encourage you, um, I know we've talked about this a little bit, that it's important to understand the um, upper extremity nerve entrapments. This is one of the reasons why, because oftentimes um, patients will self-diagnose with that carpal tunnel syndrome or that's sort of the assumption based on how they're presenting. So it's important that you understand all those different um, upper quarter nerve entrapments and and how they might present if they have similar symptoms to carpal tunnel syndrome, but it may not be that. So make sure that you know those differentiating factors and you can refer back to the episode we did in season one for that. Um, so the next section is diagnosis. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about tests and measures used to assess individuals with complaints that are consistent with carpal tunnel syndrome, including, um, so it includes symptom assessment, provocation testing, and sensory measures. So the first thing we're going to talk about is symptom assessment. So the cat's hand diagram is where the patient is asked to indicate the location of their symptoms of pain, tingling, numbness, and or decreased sensation on a picture of right and left hands. The likelihood of carpal tunnel syndrome based on the diagram is as follows. So for classic carpal tunnel syndrome, symptoms in at least two of three fingers completely innervated by the median nerve. So that would be the thumb, index, or middle fingers, but no symptoms in the palm or dorsal hand. Probable carpal tunnel syndrome would be the same symptoms as, or the same drawing as classic, except palmer symptoms are allowed unless they're only on the ulnar side of the hand. Possible carpal tunnel syndrome is where there's symptoms in at least one of either the thumb, index, or middle fingers. And unlikely carpal tunnel syndrome would be no symptoms in any of these fingers. Provocation tests are discussed in a little more detail on um, page 19 through 20, and it has a great review of the evidence of each of the following tests. Um, Also, table two and three on page 25 through 29 present details on interrelator reliability, interrelator reliability, sensitivity, specificity, um, positive predictive value, and negative predictive value. So the uh, tests that they discuss are Phelan test, Tunnel sign, carpal compression test, reverse Phelan, upper limb neurodynamic testing, and the scratch collapse test. I think most of those are pretty um, commonly used clinical tests, so you're probably familiar with those. If not, I would review them. Um, And like I mentioned, they go into a little more detail Uh, in the CPG that I'm going to go in here. And the next thing they discuss are sensory measures. So sensory testing has been advocated in the diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome to determine the extent of nerve injury. Hypoxia is proposed to affect large diameter fibers. So sensory tests, which stimulate large A-beta fibers, would theoretically be able to detect carpal tunnel syndrome in the early stages. The CPG also has results from studies on reliability and diagnostic accuracy of sensory instruments in tables 5 through 7 on pages 30 through 31. Testing with the PCV50 computerized vibrometer demonstrated excellent interrelator reliability. However, this instrument may not be available for clinicians. Um, So the CPG reviews evidence on the following sensory measures. The SEMS-Weinstein monofilament test static two-point discrimination, and vibrotactile vibrotactile testing. 
Uh, so I'm going to go over the summary of recommendations for diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome from the CPG. So with level A evidence, uh, they recommend examining a patient with when you're examining a patient with suspected carpal tunnel syndrome, clinicians should use the SEMS Weinstein monofilament test using the 2.83 or 3.22 monofilament as the threshold for normal light touch sensation um, and static two-point discrimination on the middle finger to aid in determining the extent of nerve damage. In those with suspected moderate to severe carpal tunnel syndrome, Clinicians should assess any radial finger using the 3.22 filament as the threshold for normal. The SEMS-Weinstein uh, monofilament test should be repeated by the same provider at follow-up visits. With level B evidence, they recommend using the CAT's hand diagram, Phelan test, Tonell sign, and carpal compression test to determine the likelihood of carpal tunnel syndrome and interpret examination results in the context of all clinical exam findings. With level B evidence, they recommend that clinicians should assess and document the patient's age, older than 45 years, whether shaking their hands relieves their symptoms, sensory loss in the thumb-wrist ratio index greater than 0.67, and scores from the CTQSSS greater than 1.9, which we'll be talking about that in the second uh, carpal tunnel episode a little bit further. The presence of th more than three of those clinical findings has shown acceptable diagnostic accuracy. With level D evidence, they recommend, uh, they state, I should say, that there is conflicting evidence on the diagnostic accuracy and clinical utility of the upper limb neural tension, scratch collapse test, and tests of vibration sense in the diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome, and therefore no recommendation could be made. Uh, there is a decision tree model on pages 23 and 24 that I think could be really helpful. Um, so that's definitely something that you can look at, uh, especially after you've read through the CPG, kind of go back to that decision tree and review some of that. So um, Amanda, do you have anything you want to add in the kind of summary of recommendations? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, the takeaway here is that, you know, we've been kind of saying this all along. I think wrist and hand for a lot of clinicians, not all, but a lot, is a less treated area. Um, thankful for our OT friends. Um, but therefore, I think it's really important. I'm glad that we're breaking this into two episodes to really understand your kind of anatomy and pathophysiology type of things, merely because we, it's just not something we see as often as we see um, our lumbar spine diagnoses and such like that. So um, just making sure you really understand this stuff because it's going to make understanding like the examination and treatment and stuff much easier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the next episode, we're going to dive into the examination and treatment a little bit further, and we'll kind of cover the rest of this CPG. So as always, if you guys have questions, you can send us an email at certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. We do still have the Patreon group as well. Um, and so I always link that in the show notes. Um, feel free to join us there. We release a bonus episode each month. We send out a newsletter each month and we are also doing monthly study sessions. So we'll still have a January and a February study session if you would like to join. Uh, thanks again. Thank you.